0: In 1922, an organization was founded called the Young Pioneers. Founded in Soviet Russia to teach scouting skills to children. So it's like the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts of the Communists. And along with camping and fire making and archery and all kinds of other outdoor skills, The pioneers instilled in the children, the USSR, a deep commitment to Leninism in the Soviet state. Uh, It was virtually a universal organization throughout the USSR. In the mid-70s, there were 25 million children who belonged to the young pioneers. And each one of them wore, you've probably seen pictures of them, either blue shorts or skirts or pants, a white shirt, and a red scarf around their neck. That was a standard uniform. And the founder of the organization, The Voice of the Martyrs, a guy named Richard Warmbrand, who was a prisoner in Romania of the communists, told this story about a 12-year-old girl named Volia uh, Vashenko, who was invited by her school's pioneer director to become part of the group. Uh, To deny membership in the group was to bring suspicion on yourself and your family, so there was like tons of pressure this little girl, to, to take the pledge and join the Pioneers. It's just one problem, that her family were committed Christians. And to belong to the Pioneers, you had to make a public pledge in front of all your classmates of your atheism, and you had to designate a corner of your house to your unbelief. You had to put atheistic slogans on the wall and photos and all kinds of stuff. And so she didn't think she could do it. So the day came when her teacher had her stand up in front of her class and make the pledge. And so he said, "Hey, repeat after me." And she just stood there. 12 years old. And said it again, "Hey, repeat after me." And she made, you know, a stubborn display that she wasn't going to do what he was telling her to do. So finally the teacher said, "All right, I'll say it on your behalf." And he said, "I, a young pioneer of the USSR, Before my comrades, promise that I shall stand firmly for the cause of Lenin and for the victory of communism. And as she continued, the girl spoke up. Instead of continuing with the lines of the pledge, she sang a hymn they sang at her Baptist church. We will stand firm for the gospel faith, for Christ, following His example, forward all, forward after Him. Now, I read that story this week. I was really moved by this little 12-year-old girl's conviction and courage. They wrestle with that. Like, where does that come from? Now, they're trying to brainwash her and get her to make this public pledge in front of her peers. And yet she's standing there firm on her faith in Jesus. Yeah, I want that for my kids at 12 years old. I want them to have had such an experience of the goodness and grace of God that there's nothing that could compel them to deny their faith. I've got to believe that what this little girl in Russia had experienced of Christ had convinced her that He was worth more than whatever her silence at that pledge would bring on her. Whether it was shame or scorn from her friends in her class or whether it was some kind of official persecution for her family. She was committed wholeheartedly to Christ. And our passage this morning shows us another woman with a similar commitment. And she also made a costly decision to publicly express her devotion to Jesus. And her interaction with him, like just a couple of days before his crucifixion, is incredibly convicting for me, especially as I think about my own life. And the way I express my devotion to Him. I mean, what I think is at stake in this passage and in your life and in my life is worship. Are we going to worship Jesus or not? Are we going to remain committed to Him or not? And the truth is is that worship is often incredibly costly. And it's controversial in various quarters of society. But If you've really experienced the goodness and grace of Jesus, like this little girl must have, and like the woman in this story did, worship will be your way of life. It's just going to define who you are as a person before God. So I want to work our way through this passage and show you that. That if you've experienced the goodness of God, the grace of God in your life, worship will define your existence. It will become your way of life. So we're going to work our way through this passage like we always do. And I got two goals this morning. First, I want to recalibrate your definition of worship. Okay, can we do that? I know we all have a pretty solid grasp of what we think worship is, but let's let God recalibrate our definition of worship. And then I want to prove to you why it's right, why worship is always right. And so over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through Jesus' final week of ministry in Jerusalem. We started way back at the end of Mark chapter 10 and into Mark 11 On Sunday of this final week, with Jesus leaving Jericho and arriving in Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey to the shouts of praise from His adoring crowd. On Monday, He arrives in the temple and evaluates its ministry and then casts judgment on it. He condemns it. On Tuesday, He has heated debates with the religious leaders over the source of His authority. And then He tells His disciples about the end of the world. And then on Wednesday he retreats to Simon's house in this little village of Bethany where he and his disciples were staying while they were in Jerusalem. And we get this beautiful scene of this woman arriving to worship him. The first thing I want you to see this morning as we try to recalibrate what we mean when we talk about worship is that worship is costly. Worship's costly. And we see that in verse 3. If you want to look there with me again. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table... There came a woman with an alabaster vial, of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now, if you've been with us in our study of Mark, you know that there's a lot of things that constantly remind us that Jesus lived a long time ago in a culture very different from ours. But there's probably not a more concentrated collection of words and customs that press on to us the foreign nature of Jesus' life in this passage. I mean, we're talking about his posture at the table. He's reclining with a man called Simon the leper. There's a woman with an alabaster vial of ointment made from nard. And she poured it over his head. I mean, that is, can you imagine if you were over at your friend's house and in walks somebody with a bottle of expensive perfume. And they walk up to your other friend and instead of spritzing him, They break it, and all the perfume splatters all over it. I mean, it's a weird scene, but I really think there's a lot in there that is familiar. I mean, Jesus is there with his friends, eating dinner, celebrating God's activity in Jerusalem during Passover week, and in walks in this other friend with a gift. Now she entered, I'm sure everybody would have taken notice of what she had in her hands. Now the Bible calls it an alabaster vial. Um, Most of the alabaster boxes from the first century weren't so much vials. If you think of a vial, I think of like a bottle with a stopper or something. But most of the alabaster we have from the ancient world was made into boxes that were held together by metal. And alabaster is a, a white stone that looks like marble. It's soft. It's, uh, it was mined in a place in Egypt, and it was used throughout the ancient world to, to hold perfume. That's just what it was. The Greek word is alabastron, and uh, it's just a standard bottle or box for holding perfume. But the perfume inside of it is, is really special, you wouldn't know it until it breaks open or gets spilled out how special it was. Mark tells us, I mean, he stacks up the adjectives. It was a very costly perfume of pure nard. That means nothing to me. So I had to look it up. Okay. <laughs> a very costly perfume of pure nard. And and supposedly, apparently, nard or spike nard is a member of the honeysuckle family. It only grows in the Himalayan mountains. Of Nepal, India, and China. And the perfume that this woman's box contained was a, an oil of pure extract from the spikenard plant. Because of that, it was really a priceless treasure. I mean, you take the highly skilled work of the alabaster box and this remote and exotic oil that it contained. I mean, it's not surprising that the disciples say, hey, this, and these guys are good at evaluating the cost and, and, of things. They say this ointment was worth 300 denarii. Which also may mean nothing to you, that means nothing to me, but a denarii was one day's wage for an average working man. And so the ointment this woman enters into the house with represents the value of the average working man's yearly wage. This is a priceless treasure. And it makes her actions even more astonishing when you dig into all those details. I mean, you could imagine that this woman comes in with a priceless treasure and gives it to Jesus. Like the magi who came to Jesus in Bethlehem with their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Like maybe she lays it at his feet and says, I want you to have this. This is the most expensive thing I've got. I want you to have it. That makes sense. I could even understand if she came in and dipped her finger in the oil and wiped it on his head. And that would make sense. She wants to give to him from what she has, a portion of her treasure she gives to him. But Mark says in verse 3 that when she got there, she broke the vial and poured it over his head. I mean, I want you to think about how significant that is. In a flash, this priceless family heirloom that had come from the other side of the world is destroyed. Unusable. It's gone. She walked in with maybe the modern equivalent of forty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 worth of ointment. And she leaves empty-handed. And you think to yourself, why, why did this woman do this? This seems, at least from the disciples' perspective, as we're going to see in a second, this seems reckless. This seems unexplainable. And yet I think it's obvious. The woman was glad to pour out this ointment because despite the significant value of the box and the oil, she'd found somebody who was worth more. Jesus' presence in this house, in her life, had reconfigured her value structure. So that what was once the most precious and valuable thing to her it was worth dumping out for him. I think this is really the epitome of worship. And we're in the habit of using the English word worship to describe singing. So we listen to worship music. How many of y'all listen to worship music? Okay, you listen to worship music, that's great. In your car, doing work, it's worship music. And we have worship leaders. Guys like Mike and Eric, the full band, who stand up here on stage and they lead the singing. Worship is singing, but that's really, technically speaking, too narrow a view of what worship is. The English word worship comes from a Saxon word Two words, actually, combined, worth and ship. And so worship means to recognize the value or worth that's inherent in a thing and to give it the reverence and honor that it's due. So worship's not singing. It's really an attitude of your heart where you see what something's really worth and you react or respond accordingly. Then when you come to Scripture, you see that worship's also used Much more broadly than just to sing. That, from a New Testament perspective, worship really is a comprehensive word that takes in everything about our lives as followers of Jesus. I think that's what Paul means in Romans 12, verse 1, when he says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We think of worship as singing. But worship's not singing. Worship's not even simply tithing. It's not serving. Worship can't be defined by any external act of piety that you think of or that I think of. Worship is an attitude that starts in your heart that says, I'm willing to give everything I am to Jesus because He's worth it. That is what worship is. It's giving our whole selves in devotion to Christ. Because of that, if you're honest with yourself... And if we're honest with ourselves, you ask yourself about this woman's example. When was the last time my worship cost me something? When was the last time it cost me to worship Jesus? I mean, I think the woman's example is so convicting for me because I'm in the habit of worshiping Jesus in a way that's not very costly at all. I mean, it doesn't cost me anything to get up on Sunday morning and come to church. I mean, all technically speaking, all worshiping together on Sunday morning costs us is a couple hours of free time. You could be a thousand other places doing a thousand different things, but you're not. You're here worshiping. And the opportunity cost says, well, I'll spend two hours at church and then I'll go get the rest of my stuff done. That doesn't really cost us anything. It doesn't cost us anything to listen to worship music in our car. We're in our safe and secluded bubble. But it starts to cost you something when you're 12 years old, living under a totalitarian ideology. And they say, hey, take the pledge and become a pioneer. Publicly renounce your faith in Jesus. I mean, eventually, if you take worship as seriously as the women I've talked to you about this morning, it's going to cost you something. Will you give your whole self to Jesus when the local communist asks you to take your pledge? When the HR lady makes you sign your pledge of loyalty to whatever new ideology comes down the pipe. We worship when your popularity at school is on the line. Or when your reputation at the workplace is on the line. We worship when it's your career advancement, your retirement account. When, when, When all those things start to impinge upon your faithfulness to Jesus. When you have to ask yourself, what really am I giving myself to? Am I giving myself to Jesus or something else? That is when you're worshiping. When you see Jesus as the treasure of your life and you're willing to give your whole self to Him. And so we need Jesus to recalibrate our definition. As long as worship is singing, we'll never press in to discover what He really means when He calls us to offer our bodies as living sacrifice and to offer costly worship like this lady. Number two, though, worship isn't just costly, it's controversial. And I say this, Knowing that you show up to worship on a Sunday morning in, in sort of a retreat from the world. We, we pray it and we think about it. Hey, I just want to block out everything else and I just want to worship. I just want to focus my mind on God and worship. And you got to think that that is Jesus' whole goal. He's retreating to Bethany, to the house of his friend Simon because he's trying to, you know, eat some dinner and get some relaxation happening. So the next day he's got his energy built back up that he can go to the work God's called him to do. He's retreating and maybe that's what this woman is thinking she's entering into this household for an intimate moment of worship with the master but if you broaden your perspective worship is always controversial it's always happening in the context of conflict And in fact you could say that worship is war and here's why I say this number one worship is controversial because it's a public pledge of your allegiance and if you noticed Mark sandwiches this little story about the woman's worship between two bookends. Verses 1 and 2 are the chief priests and scribes plotting to do Jesus' in, and Verses 10 and 11 are Judas deciding he's going to break away from the other 12 and he's going to go and betray his master. So let's look at these verses together. We'll look at ver- verses 1 and 2 and then verses 10 and 11. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. And good news, right? They're not going to have to do it publicly in front of the people because Judas breaks away in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Listen, this woman's act of worship separated her from everything that's going on outside the house. Out there, the nations rage. The Gentiles plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed. But inside the house, they're worshiping. And worship always separates and distinguishes the people of God from the unbelieving world. Are you you with me on that? I want you to understand how radical of a thing you've chosen to do today. That of the seven or eight billion people who live on the face of the earth many of them are happy to go about their day ignoring the testimony of the skies. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. They plug their ears and stomp their feet to the testimony of God that He's placed within them. That he's placed eternity within us, and that He's clearly revealed Himself in the things that are made so that none of us have an excuse for by looking at the world He made, we can see that there is a God. We can see His divine power and nature shining forth. And the vast majority of people are happy living their lives as enemies of God. And then here you are, willingly raising a hand, standing up and saying, no, I'm praising Jesus today. I'm publicly declaring that I belong to the people of God, and I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. This is a day that the Lord has made, and I'll rejoice and be glad in it. Worship defines who we are as the people of God, and in so doing, it marks us out and distinguishes us from the rest of the world. It's a pledge of our allegiance that we belong to Jesus, and we're going to live like it. We're going to structure our calendar so that worship takes priority, and we're going to make our decisions so that He gets the praise from our lives. People facing persecution know this. They, they understand the radical implications of living a life of worship. Like the girl in Russia, 12 years old. I mean, there's no bones about this, okay? You either stand up and renounce your faith or you stand up boldly and say, I belong to Jesus, I'm going to stand for Him. People in China know this today. They don't gather in big churches, they gather in back rooms because the officials are always hunting them, ready to throw them in prison. You know, Our friend James George who came and taught us about prayer said that in China, when a new believer comes to faith, they're very wary of them. Especially when new pastors start to rise up in the ranks. One time James was there and he said, hey, we need to watch out for this guy. One of the Chinese pastors told him, he's not been to prison yet. And so we don't know how he'll react under pressure. (coughs) Worship is a pledge of your allegiance. Who do you belong to? People living in persecution in Iran know this. The early church knew it. In the 3rd century, the Roman emperors actually began publicly and officially outlawing Christianity. They call it the Great Persecution. It happened all across the Roman Empire. What would happen is deacons and pastors and bishops would be rounded up and imprisoned and forced to recant. And if they didn't recant, they'd burn them alive or feed them to lions. And over what? what? What was the issue? It was the controversial claim that the early Christians made that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. He's the one that we bow to. He's the one who deserves our allegiance. I wonder if these Christians take encouragement from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. Y'all know that story? Three young Hebrew boys who were captured from their home in Jerusalem and taken all the way to Babylon Forced to become eunuchs and to serve in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. One day Nebuchadnezzar gets this great idea. I'm going to build a golden statue in my own image. And I'm going to get all my officials together. We're going to have a big festival. I'm going to have some trumpets play. And when the trumpets play, I'm going to command everybody to bow down before the statue of me. And so all the officials from across the Babylonian Empire arrive on the plains of Shinar before this giant golden statue. And the trumpets blast. And all across the field, people bow before the statue. And yet there are these three boys, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Listen, if you take worship seriously, it's going to be controversial. You may never have to bow to a golden statue of your political leader. I hope you don't. You may never have to burn incense to Joe Biden or Donald Trump in the local temple like they did in ancient Rome. But if you take your faith in Christ seriously, eventually your devotion to him is going to cost you something. And if it doesn't, it's not worship. Maybe it'll be at school. And you'll say, I'm so committed to Jesus that I'm willing to pour out my popularity to not be a part of that group. To not hang out with that crowd. Maybe a parent saying, faith is so non-negotiable in my family's life that we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure our kids know Jesus. To say what patriarch said, you can choose today which God you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Y'all can bow to whatever you want. Choose. You've got your pick. They don't all have great names like they used to, like Baal and Asherah and Jupiter. Instead, it's the God of money. The God of success. The God of fame. The God of power. The God of sex. You choose. There's plenty of gods that will take your worship. But if you're going to worship Jesus, it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to publicly pledge before your whole world. I'm worshiping Him. He is number one in my life. He gets everything for me. Let the world do what they want. You make those kind of conspicuous decisions, it's going to be controversial. And sometimes, it'll be controversial with the people you least expect. Isn't that what happens in verse 4? Here's this woman... Here she is among God's people bowing down before Him, pouring out her costly worship, and what did the disciples say? Look at it in verse 4. Some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? This perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Can you believe what those guys said? Why has this perfume been wasted? I mean, these are the guys who've been with Jesus for three years. They've seen every miracle He's performed. They've heard every word He's spoken. And it's a waste? I mean, I think the only thing you can say is that despite spending countless hours with Jesus, they were still evaluating this lady's worship through the lenses of their conventional religion. They belonged to a a religious culture that valued almsgiving or relief for the poor as one of the most essential disciplines of faithful people, especially during Passover week. And so they see this lady pouring out perfume that costs 300 denarii, and they think of all the work that could have been done if they just had sold that perfume and used it to help the poor. It's a waste. I mean, maybe these guys would have been comfortable if the woman had have dabbed his head or given the gift and let Jesus do what he wants with it, but he was drenched from head to toe, oil dripping down his beard. And all that opportunity had gone down the drain. Listen, worship is controversial because it's not just a public pledge of your allegiance to Jesus. It's also a personal expression of your affection for Jesus. And sometimes your worship's not going to make sense to other people. It's just not. Their reaction is a lot like Simon. Another Simon. guy who doesn't live in Bethany, but in Galilee. Who'd hosted a meal for Jesus with all his friends. And Simon was a really respectable man. He was a Pharisee. And so was known for his incredible piety. And as Jesus was eating in his house, a woman from the community came in. And she was known to... Be a sinner, he calls her. Probably disreputable, all kind of sinister implications for that. And this lady comes in and she starts weeping before Jesus. And I want you to think about this. She's weeping so heavily that she's able to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. So y'all think I get weepy sometimes. (laughs) This lady's crying a pool of tears. And Simon is scandalized. And so Jesus tells him, I like this, Luke 7, verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, I love that. I, you know, Jesus, were living today. Simon, listen up. Listen, I got a bone to pick with you. And he said, say it, teacher. He said, a money lender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them is going to love him more? And Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, You've judged correctly. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and yet you gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, and yet she anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason I say to you, her sins which are many, you got that right, she got a lot of them, but every last one of them has been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who's forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Listen, the thing these two women have in common is that both of them had taken in all the facts about Jesus. And they had realized how valuable he was. And so all they could do was express their affection for him in a way that seemed natural to him. Their worship wasn't the disciples' worship. The disciples were happy to go through with their duties, checking off the box. Hey, it's Passover week. We've got to give to the poor. They're not like Simon, who can stack up his righteous life as evidence that he loves God. These women are glad to get undignified because they see the value and worth of Jesus. They're like David, who couldn't contain his excitement. When finally the Ark of the Covenant was brought to the city of Jerusalem. And I love this story. 2 Samuel 6, David is the king and he's dancing as the priests and Levites carry the Ark of the Covenant in this wonderful parade up into the city. The Bible says he's wearing a linen ephod and apparently nothing else. Because when he gets home, his ungodly wife, Michael, gives him an earful. She says, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. She said, You uncovered yourself in front of my servants. Michael's so consumed with what other people think about David's joy before the Lord. And David says to her, I wasn't dancing. I wasn't dancing in front of your servants, Michael. It was before the Lord that I danced. Listen, I think a lot of Christians have lost connection with this truth. Worship is deeply personal. It comes from your heart. I can't worship for you. I can't sing for you. I can't make hard decisions for you. That's on you. Worship is your personal expression of your affection for Jesus. And there are some people who love Jesus a lot... And their worship gives demonstrable proof. And then there are people who worship Jesus little. And you can tell. And what's controversial about worship is that because it's an expression of your feelings, it's a reflection of your feelings. And so some people look at your life, they look at the worship you extend to Jesus, and they evaluate it through their lens. But look, they don't know what you know about Jesus. Other people don't know what Jesus has saved you from. Other people don't know how faithful Jesus has been to you in the storms of your life. Other people don't understand it. They've not been there. They don't know right now in this very moment how He is communicating to you more of His goodness and grace that you thought was possible. They don't know. That's between you and Him. It's in your heart and all you can do is let it out in praise. And so it's controversial because people look at you and they think, oh man, I wonder what's going on with that person. They're acting a little crazy. Sometimes it's your family. They think you're going overboard. Sometimes it's your coworkers. Sometimes it's even the people who sit around you at church. But they don't know you. They don't know what Jesus is doing in your life. They don't know what He's done in your life. And so it's going to be controversial because it's a personal expression of your affection for Him. I like what Jesus says to His disciples, not specifically about worship, but really about their whole life. He said, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Listen, Jesus knows your worship. He knows why you're praising, your, you're praising Him. So just let it be controversial. It's an expression of your affection. Nobody else's. And while we're on that, worship is controversial enough in the world that our brothers and sisters really don't deserve to be under a microscope in here. So I'm going to go here. Okay? Maybe you don't clap. Hardly any of y'all can clap. Y'all, it's obvious week after week. Nobody knows where the two and the four is. They occasionally find it. Okay? Maybe you don't clap. All right, fine. And you're like me, and you keep your pants from falling down by having your hands in your pocket. Great. You know? That's the way you worship? Fine. But if they want to clap, let them clap. Look, you don't like raising your hands in worship? I get it. I get it. This is the standard Baptist worship pose. But if somebody wants to raise their hand to God, let them do it. Let there be freedom to worship God the way you feel you need to in your heart. If you don't feel compelled to pray at the end of a service here at the stage, don't. Pray where you are. But don't wonder what's going on in those people's life who have to go down there and pray. That's between them and God. It's their personal expression of worship. They're affectionate to Jesus. They don't have any other way. They're doing what seems right to them. And so you feel the freedom and liberty to praise God as you should. And when you do, your worship will be right. That's our final point this morning. And finally, Jesus brings some clarity to this whole situation. The woman worshiping, dumping out oil on his head, disciples conjecturing that it's a waste. And finally, he says, No. Leave her alone. Verse 6. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a good thing for me, a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you don't always have me. She's done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for the burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus finally brings some clarity to this situation. He provides the divine approval. What this woman did was right. leave her alone. See, he sees what she's doing, and he knows it is costly. Maybe the most expensive gift anybody gave, gives him in the gospel, except maybe Joseph of Arimathea, who gives him his tomb. And yet he says that the woman has taken stock of the situation and she has invested her resources wisely. She's done what she could. Other people do other things. She did what was right. She anointed my body for the burial. Like I don't understand the woman's motivation. I've tried to figure this out. Why did this woman show up to begin with? We know why Jesus says she's doing it. But what did she think? And I don't know. Maybe she saw Jesus on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and she had seen the symbolic actions that he had performed riding into the city on a donkey, cleansing the temple. And maybe she'd come to believe that He was the Messiah. And you probably know this, but the Hebrew word Messiah means the anointed one. And so maybe she saw who Jesus was. He's the anointed one. Well, I need to do my part and anoint Him. And she's fulfilling the role that Samuel played back in 1 Samuel when he anointed King Saul, took the horn of oil and dumped it over his head. And later did the same thing to David in front of his brothers and dad. It's like, hey, this is the Messiah, and I'm going to anoint him. Maybe she saw that he was the one who was blessed by God. And like the pilgrims had praised him on Sunday in Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And she knew that the anointing with oil is a sign of God's blessing. Just like David says in Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. This man is blessed of God. Let's add the anointing so that everybody knows it. I tend to think that she probably doesn't even know why she did what she did. There's something inside of her compelled her. She said, I got this ointment. I'm just, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk into that room, and I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to bust it up on his head, and it's going to pour all over him. She probably had no concept of what she was doing or why she did it. She just felt like the Lord was leading her to do it, and so she did. But Jesus saw through all that. And he said, she's anointed my body for the burial. I mean, Jesus saw this woman's worship and connected it with His act of faithfulness that lay just 24 to 48 hours ahead of Him. I mean, He'd been preparing His disciples for months that when He got to Jerusalem, He was going to be betrayed, handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they were going to give Him to the Gentiles, and He was going to die, and on the third day, He was going to rise again. And His disciples were so so stubborn They wouldn't believe it. And so finally, here comes this woman, unnamed, into the house, pouring out this oil, and Jesus says, finally somebody gets it. Finally somebody sees what I'm here in Jerusalem to do. And she's done what only she can do. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. 24 hours, he and his disciples are going to gather together. And he's going to impress this truth upon them one more time. They're going to celebrate the Passover meal, which commemorated God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt when He commanded them to sacrifice a lamb to paint its blood on the doorposts of their houses so that when He sent His avenging angel to take the firstborn child from every Egyptian home, their houses would be passed over. Instead of recounting that story, which the disciples had heard 30 times every year since they were a kid, Jesus reinterprets it. And he passes around the cup and blesses it. And instead of recounting the bitter drink that God's people had to drink, he's going to say, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I mean, he sees in this woman's action preparation for what's to come. But just as she poured out the oil, he's going to pour out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And she's done what she can do. She's preparing him for his final task. Listen, I don't know if you believe in Jesus, if you've trusted in him, but I can imagine if you're still on the edge about who he is and the significance of him, this talk about his death in such a positive light is strange. I mean, usually someone's death means it's the end of their life's work. The time's done. Nothing left to do. It's over. And so why would Jesus look forward to his death? Why would that be something that this woman is preparing him for? What, what's going on here? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus' death is significant, not just for the mission he performed that week in Jerusalem, but for all time and in all places. The Bible says that when God created our world, He prepared a perfect place for people. A place where mankind was meant to live with Him in perfect fellowship and to have every need met in Him. They were going to have to work, but their work was going to be meaningful. And as they worked, they were going to extend God's glory over the face of the earth. They were going to worship while they worked. And yet instead of worshiping God, the first people rebelled against Him and rejected His authority. And because of that, which the Bible calls sin, they were separated from Him. And instead of worshiping God as God, they began to worship created things. And they made statues of kings and of lizards and birds. They bowed down before the sun. They worshiped themselves. In fact, their wickedness became so great on the face of the earth that God chose to wipe it out in the flood. And because of mankind's sin... You and I add to their sin with sins of our own. And so every last one of us was made to worship God, and yet we're separated from Him and we worship ourselves. But God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to obey God's law, worshiping Him wholeheartedly, loving Him with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength, doing everything as He commanded on our behalf, in our place. And then He died... 24 hours after this woman anoints him, he's nailed up to a cross and his body still smells like oil of pure nard. Jesus was convinced that his death wasn't for any sin that he committed, but it was for our sins. And when he was buried in Joseph's tomb, after three days he rose again. And now he extends this invitation to anybody. If they would repent of their sins and trust in him as Lord... They'd be forgiven and could be restored into a fellowship with Him and they could live their life with meaning and purpose, worshiping Him as they were created to do. So Jesus sees His death not as the end of His work, but as the climax and culmination. It's the very thing that qualifies Him to be the one we worship. Worship is right because He died and rose again. I know that because the book of Revelation tells us that when Jesus walked into heaven after His ascension, All of heaven stopped in their tracks, and they turned their eyes toward him. And John, who's beholding this vision, says he saw one like a lamb that was slain, the Passover lamb that had been slaughtered. And all of heaven said to him, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals? For you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you made them to be a kingdom. And priests to our God, and they'll reign on the earth. Later in verse twelve of Revelation five, they say, "Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." Y'all, you know, what this woman had was a real vision of Jesus. She saw him as he was, the Messiah who was about to lay down his life for her, and she gave him everything she could. Worship of him was right. In fact. Anything less is unacceptable. Worship is the only right response to who Jesus is. Because of that, for every one of us, worship will be costly. When we give ourselves to other gods, we are sorely disappointed. And it's controversial because everybody else around us, they got their gods they're bound down to, but we worship Jesus and Him alone. But worship is right. He's worthy. His name is above every name. He's worthy of everything you have. He's worthy of everything I have. Worship's right. And so I don't know where you are today in your relationship with God. You may be like that 12-year-old girl in Russia, and there's no cost too high that you won't pay it. You're living completely devoted to Jesus. Your life defines what it means to live a lifestyle of worship. And so, praise God. And continue pressing in and pressing on and set an example, set the pace for us maybe you'd be honest you'd say that if you ever found yourself in that girl's shoes you don't know how you'd react in fact you're in a situation a lot like that right now that you feel torn between your desires for your life and your devotion to Jesus between your faith and your family. And today Jesus has brought you here to remind you just how valuable He is. To see and remember what He did for you. That He lived a life that you should have lived and He died the death that you deserved. He was give, willing to give His life for you. Why wouldn't you give your life for Him? Why wouldn't you say, Jesus, you're worth everything. You are my Lord. I want to do what only you want me to do. And so today as our band comes and sings, I invite you... To get right with Him. To get settled in your heart that He really is worthy. That He really is valuable. And that you're going to live your life reflecting that truth. Maybe you need to come down here and kneel at the altar. These people have already told you they're not going to judge you. You come and kneel before the Lord like this woman did. And praise Him. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you. There will be prayer partners at the back and I'll be down here at the front. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you don't even know why you want to come. But something in your heart tells you I need to talk to somebody. Prayer partners or I would be glad to do that. Maybe today you don't know Jesus, and all this talk about him and his life and death has made you realize that you want to live your life for somebody like that. Today's the day that you settle that you're going to live for Jesus. We'd love to talk to you. Maybe you need a church home. You want to be committed to Jesus, but you need people to surround you and encourage you as you follow him. Come, we'd love to talk to you. But However you need to.